Folks, you know I always have the heavy hitters coming in. You know I got some people from Southwest Baltimore. Some big. This guy's big time. He's doing big things. You probably don't hear a lot about him, but he's been on news a couple times. And I was like, oh, I know that guy. And I have the Shiva staff here with him. Can't wait for you guys to check this episode out and make sure your face is recognized. That's a little hint about what we're talking about today. OpenWorks is Baltimore's largest makerspace, offering access to tools ranging from 3D printers to welders and training in how to use them. OpenWorks also offers affordable studio space, a coffee shop, and fun-free events throughout the year. But OpenWorks is more than a public workshop. It's a community of creative professionals, students, seniors, entrepreneurs, and makers of all kinds. Check out the website at www.openworksbmore.org or Instagram at open underscore works underscore bmore for class schedules, membership options, and more. Pandora's Box is a mod, vibrant, woman-owned lifestyle boutique located in the historic Federal Hill neighborhood of Baltimore, Maryland. Pandora's Box offers unique selection of the latest trends, jewelry, gifts, home decor, and personal accessories. Their products are high quality, affordably priced, and hand-picked with a sense of humor and authenticity, making them items that everyone can relate to. They are known for sourcing memorable and relevant keepsakes that allow customers to give from their hearts without the stress that comes from doing so. You can count on Pandora's Box to help you select and package the perfect gift. Visit Pandora's Box at 50 East Cross Street, Baltimore, Maryland, 21230. Visit them online at pandorasboxboutique.com. Visit on social media at Shop Pandora's Box Boutique. No Picks After Dark is sponsored by Snug Books an independent bookstore serving Northeast Baltimore and beyond. In addition to featuring new books for all ages, the store also carries cards, stationery, gifts, games, and more. Visit snugbooks.com to shop online, learn more about the store, read our latest newsletter, and find a calendar of events, or come browse the store in person. Snug Books is located at 4717 Harford Road, next to Zeke's Coffee in Hamilton, Laurelville. There is free parking behind the store and open hours are Tuesday through Sunday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. The No Picks After Dark podcast is proudly partnered with Maggie's Farm, located at 4341 Hartford Road. Maggie's Farm offers a unique dining experience with delicious handcrafted cocktails and mouth-watering cuisine, from falafels to scallops and everyone's favorites, honey sriracha cauliflower wings. Open for dinner from 4 p.m. until 10 p.m., Tuesday through Saturday, and for brunch, Saturday from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m., and Sunday from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. with delectable chicken and waffles, shrimp and grits, biscuits and gravy, and more. Check out Maggie's Farm on Instagram and Facebook for daily and weekly food specials. Welcome to the No Picks of Dark podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Dante. I told you guys I have the amazing host, guest coming on today. I'm so excited. I can't wait to tell you guys who's here, but I'm going to let them introduce themselves first. Go ahead. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Councilman Christopher Burnett, representing the 8th District, uh, which has uh, Southwest and Northwest Baltimore, uh, and I'm excited to be on the show. And I'm Kim Sauer. Um, I am Councilman Burnett's uh, Chief of Staff and Director of Policy. Nice, nice. So thank you guys for coming to Northeast Baltimore. Of course. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. So I wanted to give you flowers off the top. I wanted to know a little bit more about your district. Because I feel like if I'm going to be a Baltimore podcast, I need to know the city. And you are so gracious to take me on a tour. You and Paris took me all through the district. I was blown away. I hadn't been to Edmondson Village in a minute because... All I remember was the Popeyes, mm-hmm. and so it's been there forever. And then what was that movie with the lady that the uh, keepers and something like that? The, oh yeah, and she got lost at that. <laughs> but that's I'm saying like those are things. And the serial podcast. Serious, well, uh, serial <laughs> podcast. A lot of, a lot of um, negativity. A lot of activity <laughs> out there, but you know, and there's but there's amazing character, amazing houses over there. A sense of community. People take care of their lawns. It's really beautiful, and you have a beautiful park. And that's a whole different story. But that's a, that's a part two episode we'll talk about later. But thank you so much for inviting me over. Of course, anytime. Um, love to show people, show show the district, show a part of Baltimore that a lot of a lot of folks aren't as familiar with. 
Uh, but I think it's a gem for the city. Let's talk about the district a little bit. Let's talk about how long you've been in office for. Um, why did you get into office? And where does the district, where, where, do the, where do the lines go? So I can start there. So I have uh, pretty much the demarcation line for a lot of people, I would I would say, is the Hilton Parkway. So I have Edmondson Village area from the Edmondson Avenue Bridge to the county line. Uh, I have Frederick Avenue, so like that Irvington Beachfield corridor from Hilton Parkway to the county line. Uh, go up Cooks Lane, up into like the Hillsdale, the Forest Park, Golf Course area, Dickeyville, Howard Park, all the way up to the shop right on Liberty Heights Avenue uh, and the new 21st Century School at Calvin Rodwell. Um, but a lot of people also know Gwynn's Falls Lincoln Park. Uh, obviously, uh, the, the Adnan Syed story has been back in the news. Uh, that, w- that took place <laughs> in, in the district, start to finish. Um, and so, you know, outer west side of the city. Um, you asked why I ran for office. I felt like we needed a community organizer on the council. Uh, before running, I, you know, I've done a lot of organizing work, both in the labor union world, organizing workers around fair wages, around benefits for their families. Um, I did a lot of work in my own community, planting trees, mentorship. I used to run a farmer's market at Edmondson High School, uh, served on the board of my community association. Uh, and through all of that work, never actually wanted to run for office. I did want to do policy work, um, did want to be an advocate, was doing all of those things. But once you start digging in, people start saying, hey, have you ever thought about running for office? And so I was kind of pushed into it by community, which I think is a good thing. It's the best way to have that stamp of approval to say, hey, we want somebody that has been in the trenches with us that, that's going to keep doing that work. And I think, you know, in the five years I've been in office, I was elected in 2016. And so I'm in my second term. Um, and I think I, I, I think I can safely say that whether people like me or don't, I've still been in the trenches in community, picking up trash, working with kids, planting trees and fighting for the West Side, fighting for the city of Baltimore. Are you originally from Baltimore? Born and raised. Okay, so you're from you're from the area, correct? I'm not from the West Side. Okay. And of course, the second question everyone from Baltimore has is, "Where you go to high school?" So I'm going to jump ahead of both of those. So I grew up in East Baltimore, um, and in eighth grade we moved to the county. So I went to Kimwood High School. Which, fun fact, there are two Kimwood High School graduates on the city council, uh, which is very random. But myself and Sharon Middleton also graduated from Kimwood High School uh, a couple decades before I did. Um, no shade, Sharon, if you're listening. <laughs> Uh, but uh, it's a little older. Um, so randomly, two of us on the city council. Uh, I moved to Edmondson Village after grad school, uh, or actually during grad school. I uh, got married to my wife, Vanessa, and my dad's wedding gift to us was cheap rent at the family house uh, that he grew up in and my grandfather bought when he moved here in 65 from Winsboro, South Carolina, which no one has ever heard of. Middle of nowhere. Beautiful town, though. Um, and so we initially just were supposed to stay for a couple of years until we got on our feet. Um, I was waiting tables at the time and, you know, working with my community. Uh, and then we just fell in love with the neighborhood and got very involved uh, in a lot of the activities happening and decided, hey, we weren't going anywhere. So I ended up buying the house for my dad. And that was about 10 years ago. Um, and so I don't live in that original house anymore. I've now handed it off to my brother. So we still keeping it in the family. Um, so I live in Hunting Ridge, which is right next to Edmonton Village and still along the Edmonton Avenue corridor. You know, one thing I like about what you said, that's how you start generational wealth. Yep. You move in the, the property from house person to person. We have a house in my family like that, where I've lived there in 2005, and then my sister lives there. Yep. So we kept the family. So we're going to try and keep it in the family just keep that property you know yeah and he has he has his two kids there i got a little one uh so at some point maybe they'll be the next generation to hand it off to we're, we're never selling um you know it's a it's a strong community people love it and the thing i love about edmondson area and i love about my district generally is like people don't really leave like it's a very residential district um a lot of beautiful neighborhoods beautiful housing stock um, but a lot of long-term residents. And that was one of my favorite things when I was running for office was sitting on the front stoop with people, sitting on the front porch, getting to know the history of every neighborhood I was in. And there were just so many people that could do that. It would drive my campaign team nuts because they were like, we got to get to the next house. <laughs> but it was just that that institutional memory and that history and culture that really made me fall in love with the community when we first moved there and makes me very proud to represent it on the city council. Nice, nice. So, Mr. Kim. Let's talk a little bit about you. How did you get on the chief? How did you get on chief of staff? How did you get here? Let's talk a little bit about you. What's going on? What's your story? Yeah. So um, Chris and I first met when I was working at the state's attorney's office. I was their human trafficking uh, coordinator. So assisting with case management for victims of trafficking, as well as um, 
providing support for investigations and prosecutions of human trafficking. Um, and uh, Councilman Burnett started the Baltimore City Human Trafficking Collaborative. Um, and that's how we originally got connected. And then when his chief of staff, his previous chief of staff um, was moving out of the area, um, he asked me to apply and um, I got the position and I'm really excited to be here. My background is in policy and legislation, um, focusing on victim services, reproductive health care, um, all types of different policies for nonprofits and uh, organizing. Wow. So are you from, like I got, you know, he, he already brought it up. So <laughs> are you from Baltimore also? And I am from Baltimore County. Okay. Um, so right next door, but I've been living in the city for the past 15 years. Um, and all of my extended family is from Baltimore as well. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you guys started working together a couple of years ago. How, how far back? Like, oh, sorry, Chief of Staff, when you guys... Well, yeah, we were working together before she came on staff. Okay. Um, with the, so I, I co-chair the Human Trafficking Collaborative, which is the largest collaborative in the state of Maryland. Uh, we have over 50 partner organizations that are government agencies, community-based organizations, victim-serving organizations, survivors of human trafficking. Um, basically, five years ago, I had a constituent come to me. Uh, there was a, a young child that went missing and was found in D.C., uh, and I think Kimmy actually knew about the case. Um, I didn't know anything about human trafficking. I didn't know anything about the case. I had a constituent come to me after a town hall meeting, like explain to me what went, went on. And it turns out she was that child's um, uh, case, not case manager, but I guess like uh, counsel, school counselor at the time. And she went to Western High School. And um, she says, you know, tells me the story. And she's like, you need to do something about human trafficking. And I'm like, okay. I don't know what to do. So like any politician, I'm like, well, let's call a hearing and see what's going on. And so we we just held a hearing and just invited out. And I think that's where I first met Kim. Um, at, uh, I want to say we were at Dunbar. Yeah. Um, and we held this big hearing where we invited every victim-serving organization, every city agency, law enforcement, to talk about the issue, just to educate the council on what was going on. And a couple things were apparent to me was that, one, this is a huge issue impacting Baltimore City, whether we're talking child sex trafficking, adult trafficking, benefits trafficking. I mean, we can have a whole labor trafficking. Like, there's a lot of people being taken advantage of, and happy that we could have a whole conversation about this. And she's actually the expert here. <laughs> um, and so it was apparent to me that this was a huge problem, but also that the there was not a coordinating entity bringing everybody together in the way that this hearing sort of made it apparent needed to happen. And so uh, I worked with the mayor's office to bring in a guy named Tom Stack, who's the co-chair of the collaborative and the uh, works in the mayor's office as the human trafficking coordinator from uh, mayor's office of neighborhood safety. Um, we convened the first meeting in December, I want to say of 2017, um, and have been off to the races ever since. Um, and Kim chairs the public awareness committee and co-chairs with me the legislative subcommittee. Um, and we've done trainings all over the city. Again, this is a whole other, whole other, con whole other conversation. <laughs> um, but that's how I met Kim was through the, her work as a certified expert in this area. Uh, and so when the position came open, I was like, it wasn't really even apply. I was like, please come, please help. Uh, I couldn't think of anybody more. How'd you feel when he reached out to you? Like, was that something that you did? did you, that was that like, you know, I have a, a bingo card. Was that a bingo card of being a chief of staff for a council person in Baltimore city? Yeah, I had never thought of it before, um, but I love what I do. And one of the reasons I really love this job is because I'm not focused on one topic. Um, and I think the most valuable thing that I've learned from this position is how so many different issues intersect with each other, right? You don't think about like sewage backups and illegal dumping as part of this bigger ecosystem that is contributing to crime and poverty and things like that. And it's really, for me, what like addressing each component is so important to moving us on a path of better, stronger communities that are healthy, um, productive, and uh, successful. Well, I appreciate you guys giving me a quick background about both of you because, you know, I want to get people to understand how you guys met as far as, you know, chief of staff, councilman. You know, again, it's an honor to always have a councilman in the office, especially mm -hmm. not in the district coming through hanging out. So we really appreciate you coming hanging out. So, folks, right after these messages, we're going to get into something very important that we want to talk about. Um, and I think I want, I want you guys to hear this because it's very important. Facial recognition. When you think about that, what comes to your mind? So we'll be right back at these messages.
When you give to United Way, your gift could be the first spark of something bigger. It can help provide nutritious food for a family in need. Because eating healthy shouldn't be a luxury. It can help someone with housing challenges and be a catalyst for a new beginning. Because a safe space to call home is the foundation for building a better future. Give today. Spark something bigger. The No Picks After Dark podcast is fueled by Carver Communications, where we turn water into wine. What do successful companies like Nike and Microsoft have in common? They all have full-service public relations departments that fuel every aspect of their business. Bill Gates has repeatedly said, if I had one last dollar, I would spend it on PR. Smart business owners and executives understand that to grow their businesses and their brands, they need PR. That's where Carver PR comes in. Carver PR is one of the most premier PR agencies located in Washington, D.C. They handle media relations, marketing, branding, corporate strategy, and crisis. With 25 years in the communication field, they are well-versed in every area of business you can imagine. Political, entertainment, corporate, and nonprofit communications. Go to their website and check them out, therealcarver.com, or reach out to them now at therealcarver at gmail.com. The No Picks After Dark podcast is fueled by Zeke's Coffee. Have you tried their coffee yet? I'm telling you, there's something different about it. Maybe it's because they roast their beans in a fluid coffee roaster, which provides the most accurate roasting temperatures and made with love. You will just have to check it out for yourself and try their delicious food while you're at it. Open now for curbside service, online ordering, carryout, and they also do wholesale. Visit Zeke's Coffee at 4719 Hartford Road. Open Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. and Sunday, 8 to 5 p.m. Kitchen closes at 3 p.m. Or visit Zeke'sCoffee.com and you too can be fueled by Zeke's. So folks, we are back. and I mean, we had this amazing discussion. I'm so happy to counsel and Christopher is here. The chief of staff, Ms. Kim, is here. Thank you guys for coming over to Northeast. I know it's a long way over here. I know it's a free farm. Uh, of the world. My no, aunt does it's live up the street, though, so I do need to go say hi. <laughs> My aunt lives right up the street, so after I leave here, I will go knock on her door and say okay, hello. Okay, okay. Uh, you you, you, I cannot come to this side of town without saying you, hi to auntie. You know what side? You know you, you know you can have it. You're on this side of town. Mm-hmm. You know you're missing one place yet. You haven't gotten there. Or Coco's? Yeah, man. Right. You're right down the street. You're right here, brother. I, you know? I come to Coco's. And similarly, the last time I went to Coco's, I grabbed her. Her and two of my great aunts lived together uh, right by Valentino's. And uh, I grabbed them some some crab cakes on the yeah. way. It's, it's only right. You got you know, you know things you got to get Coco's. You yeah. Get that. I mean, speaking of food, the spot you guys put me on to over sugar there. Mamas. Sugar Mamas. Good Lord. Yes. I'm going to tell y'all folks, that's Sugar Mamas. Oh, yeah. You know, I drove over there one time. On, on my day off, mm-hmm. I was like, I got good. That's how good it was. Oh, Sugar Mamas, I always tell people, I'm like, it is delicious. It is terrible for you, but it is so good. Mm-hmm. Like, don't go if you're on a diet, but if you are on a diet, just hit the track after, hit the gym after, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that, that don't even help, know. bro. Because I, 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 I was a quick nap afterwards. Yeah, so oh, the itis hits hard <laughs> when you leave Sugar Mamas. But, it, you know, for them, for me, for them, I love supporting them because they're from that community. Mm-hmm. Um, they grew up in the area. So it's like, it's a, they, they're awesome chefs, um, but they're also just awesome people that care about the neighborhood. And so those kind of businesses I do try to lift up. So anytime somebody comes to the 8th District and they're like, where should I eat? Sugar so, Mama's fan. So there you go, people. If you're watching, you plug Sugar Mama's right there. You plugged them. Oh, yeah. So let's talk about facial recognition. I know we've, we've talked back and forth about it. When I think of facial recognition, I think of like the movies where like you gotta go in and they 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 see your face and you can open the door and things of that nature. Or when you go to the airport and they have clear and clear has the facial recognition. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking those are all for the good. Mm-hmm. That's when I think about facial recognition. Um, what's going on in Baltimore facial recognition? So facial rec is a, is an area similarly that I, I kind of stumbled upon. Um, 
I was up at like 2 a.m. one night watching. I'm a big fan of the John Oliver show. Um, and so I'm watching his, his show and he does an episode it's like two years ago now on facial recognition. And folks can find it on YouTube um, where he just does a excellent job like laying out. And similarly, like where he breaks down very complex issues in a pretty funny way. Um, but I'm watching it at like two o'clock in the morning. Like, oh, man, this is like really bad. Um, and so I'm emailing myself at like 2 a.m. and emailing my, my former chief of staff, like, we got to do something about this. And I, I, for the audience, I don't usually get my ideas from television, but occasionally, like... Were you going down a rabbit hole at 2 o'clock in the morning? Yeah. Okay, absolutely. you went down a rabbit hole. Yeah. Okay. I mean, yes. <laughs> this is what I do from time to time. Uh, and so, I, but I also just like a show. So I, I, it's something I watch every week. And again, I don't usually get ideas from TV, but... I was like, yo, this is like really bad. We need to do something about this. And similarly, I don't know what to do. So let me start researching. And so we did a deeper dive into the issue and realized that not only is this something that a lot of people just are sort of used to, I think, to some degree, um, but it's more pervasive than we really think it is. Um, and, you know, I don't know how, you know, we want us to start with like why it's a problem, but in, in short, like it's, in Baltimore City, um, there's just some pretty scary stuff on how law enforcement uses it. And and more importantly, I think how private entities, corporations, banks, um, just literally walking down the street. In, in some ways, I would frame it as like a virtual stop and frisk. Um, there's not many forms of technology where you can just exist in real time, in real space, and people can tell who you are, where you are. Aaron's walking down the street right now, going to Coco's, uh, and what they do with that information, we still really don't know. Um, but it's we know it's valuable, um, and and you know, Kim, I think can really elaborate on just sort of this larger ecosystem of like surveillance technology in Baltimore and how it's not only incredibly problematic but overabundantly used in Black and Brown communities. So, what would you say? Okay, so, to counter that, I have an iPhone, and I put it up to my face. I unlock my phone. I unlock my my everything on my phone locks. I unlock my Wells Fargo, Bank of America. So it's everyday use. We don't really know. I'll get. But to counter this, like it's every day. It's a part of life. You know, if you talk on your phone right now about Amazon, five minutes later you're gonna Amazon ad on your phone. Mm -hmm. Why is this a bad thing? Why is this per se? Why for black and brown? I mean, I'm kind of giving the counter argument. Why? Yeah. Why? Why? I mean. So the audience can understand a little bit better. Yeah. So one, it's important to understand that what we're focused on isn't necessarily the comparison of your biometrics that's getting you into your phone, right? Those are all user uploaded. So when you're setting your iPhone up, you scan your face so that it matches uh, the biometrics that you set in your phone, right? Mm -hmm. What we are talking about is the fingerprint of your biometrics and the systems and algorithms that are set up to identify you as an individual, not just do a biometric comparison, right? So if I take your biometrics that you uploaded to your phone, I take them from the back end from your phone, scan them into a database to identify you by your social security number, right? Your identity. That is the component that we're talking about, not the anonymity that comes from just biometric to biometric um, measurements. Um, so it's really important when, we, when we're talking about this um, that we are, we are intent is focusing on those databases that are identifying you as an individual, not doing that lower level biometric to biometric measurement. Okay. And I, and I would say on you asked like why why it's a problem. And I and I'll give an example. So uh following the death of Freddie Gray, uh the Baltimore City Police Department when when all of those protests were going on in front of City Hall and throughout the city, they were using facial recognition technology to scan crowds of protesters to then see who had a warrant or who just simply who was there so that they could follow up with these people, harass them, lock them up. Uh, and so we've seen both literally in Baltimore where this is authoritarian behavior. We've seen this in following the, the troop uh, withdrawal in Afghanistan where the uh, Taliban and, and other entities were able to get their hands on the facial recognition databases that the U.S. government left behind. And they were having checkpoints to see who were, were U.S. sympathizers so that they could lock them up and 
who knows what happened to these people. Um, we've seen the Chinese do this with uh, ethnic minorities, uh, Muslim minorities in their country, using facial recognition to capture them and put them in the labor camps. Um, uh, and so I think while that may seem pretty far off uh, here in the U.S., we did have four years of Trump. Um, and so we I don't think that, you know, our democracy is at stake right now um, and has been for some time. And so this type of technology falling in the wrong hands can easily go from something as simple as being able to open your phone to being able to track down political opponents, to lock up people who are dissenters, who have a different opinion. Maybe we're going after the LGBTQ community or, or black people. I mean, who knows where you draw the line and the ability to immediately recognize who they are, identify who they are, where they live, who they're associated with, and then use that as a tool to then track people down is a problem that we aren't that far away from. Um, the other thing is the sale of this information. Uh, it is incredibly valuable to know not only where someone is, but we've met with stakeholders who, for example, want to have curated experiences. Like you go into an art gallery and like the, the art that you see is uh, curated in a certain way, or in the, in the instances of the cruise example, um, we had some folks from the cruise industry who were like, yeah, we wanna be able to like know what type of coffee you like or kind of drinks you like. Uh, and so when you walk out to the deck, uh, there's already your, your Mai Tai is already ready. Um, but then we know that it can also be used in the opposite direction where we can say, oh, Aaron's here. We're not going to serve him or we're not, we're going to give you a different type of experience because we know how much money you make. We know which room you're staying in. We know your spending habits. Mm -hmm. And so the ability to discriminate against people and to cause harm are, are really problematic. And there are no regulations on this. Right. Um, there's nothing at the national level that that regulates this in any kind of way. Every attempt at the state level to regulate this has been shot down by the General Assembly. And we are the only jurisdiction in Maryland that was successfully able to pass a moratorium, which is a temporary ban, which actually expires uh, December 31st of this year. Um, and so and I'm happy to go into the politics, you know, when you're ready. But like that was as, as close as we could get, because I think a lot of people with the levels of violence that we have in Baltimore, there's this sort of perception that like we need all the tools to keep people safe. But then there's sort of this, I think with this particular topic, it hits on the intersection of like safety. You're, you're, you're handing over this perceived level of safety in exchange for handing over your rights to just exist in the world and in just your rights to not be harassed by either private companies or by law enforcement potentially. I have a quick question. So let's, let's go back. Cause you, you threw a lot of stuff out there. You threw a lot of meat out there, a lot of meat. So you left a lot of mutant bone here. So let's go back to the Freddie Gray situation when everything was going on, civil unrest. They were using, this is legal for them to use that so to find out who was in the crowd. Yep. Yep. Because you're already they, in the database. So where Everyone they, is. So yeah, let's, let's start with that. Yeah. How are we in the database already? How, so, so how is that even possible? So when you go to the NBA, which everyone hates, right. you go in the NBA, you sit down, you get your number, you wait however many hours for them to call you up, you take that photo. Any government-issued ID is uploaded into the Maryland Image Repository System, and now it's a new system called CMS, which I'm blanking on the acronym, that the state law enforcement agencies all use. So every right. police department in the state of Maryland has access to this database, which has every person. And you haven't committed a crime. You just, the only thing you did was say, I want to drive a car or I just have an ID. Like even if it's not a driver's license, any government issued photo is already in the system. And so when they scan, when they, they there's a instance where, you know, they're, they're looking at the crime scene and they say, all right, we have this video from the gas station, they upload that image and then they compare it to that already existing database to try and see if they can find a, a likely match. Mm. Um, now I say likely because one of the, the things that was apparent that was a huge red flag for me when looking into this issue was how inaccurate this information is. Um, because a lot of the software that is used, many of the software systems that are used were developed by white and Asian males. And so the systems are significantly more accurate when it comes to white and Asian male faces than they are of anyone else. Particularly, they are least effective at recognizing not only black and brown people, but particularly black women. Mm. Uh, and so there's a, um, uh, Joy Buluimi did a study. She's out of MIT. 
um, where she, she did many reports on this, but was able to sh upload and show faces. And, and many, many of the software systems that she used, she had to put a white mask on in order for it to recognize that anyone was sitting there in the first place, but that there was a person in front of it. Uh, and so she showed this time and time again. She also did another study where she uploaded members of Congress and it could not <laughs> even recognize. And these are like incredibly public faces. Like they're not me in Southwest Baltimore. Like this is like Elijah Cummings, like, you know, level of, of, of influence mm. and, and visibility. And these systems also could not recognize black and brown members of Congress. Mm. And it's important to understand the technology, like a lot of technology, like medical technology, cameras, things like that. They've all been developed by typically white people and then they've been piloted on white people, right? So like when you look down at a very micro level of this technology, each component is not developed under a like racial lens mm. right and so a lot of the machine learning experts the people that are really trying to develop these databases that identify the biometrics particularly of people of color um, have all commented that down to the cameras that capture the images to be used for comparison are all very white lens focused right and so that is one of the major issues. And I think we're starting to see a lot of that come out, especially in the medical community, where things like the forehead thermometers do not give accurate um, readings for particularly darker skinned people because they don't recognize the fever, which is a huge indication of infection, which has a lot of medical and health fallouts when, you're not, when your equipment is not adequately assessing your your body's metrics so, so you know so <clears throat> let's bring it back to with baltimore mm -hmm. as a whole why should so it's a moratorium first of all yeah why do the listeners the why people are watching and they feel like they need to know about this and what's going to happen next so we can because this episode will come out in november and what should they be writing their council person <laughs> Uh, Ryan Dorsey, probably if you're, you know, yeah. but <clears throat> whoever, but you know, <laughs> what should they know about this for Baltimore? Cause you said something really important, brown and black people out here, a lot of crimes, things automatically, they don't recognize. So what can you, what, what, what are you guys looking to do going forward? So I'll, I'll, I'll do a little bit of the history of what we've tried so far. Okay. So I watched that episode in September of 2018 <laughs> or so. 20, yeah, 2018, 2019 or so. Um, and I we're, we're approaching, it's had to be 2019 because we were approaching the end of the term. And so once you hit the end of the term, you just don't have a lot of wiggle room politically to like take on bigger things. Uh, and so I tried to ban it. Outright, um, and the, I was a member, or still am a member of the Public Safety Committee. It was a different makeup at that time, um, but it was voted down in committee. Um, they felt that it was taking away tools from law enforcement, which was incredibly disingenuous, considering the police department is not under local control. State, uh, it's a state agency. It will be until January of the coming year. So there was no impact. It would have only impacted private industry, but nonetheless, it was voted down anyway. Uh, and so went back to the drawing board. One just felt like I needed more time to like educate myself on it, educate my colleagues on it. And so when we took it back up, um, Kimmy was on the staff at that point and we made a run instead of making another run at a ban because talking to members of the council, we just didn't have the votes. People felt like, you know, the levels of violence that we have here, that all the, we need all the tools to combat crime. And so what we did do was say, look, there's so much that the council doesn't know about this issue, that the administration doesn't know about this issue. Give us time to do research, to do a white paper, present that to the council. And in the interim, let's pause the use of it or most uses of it. So we weren't able to, to impact the police department's access to it, but we essentially hit a pause button on every other city agency. We put a pause on the ability to procure new technology. And, and when I say other agencies, this technology has the ability to to be embedded in license plate readers and in, in red light camera systems and body worn cameras that the police are, the police department uses. Um, I mean, you name it, like you, anything that has a lens, you can either upload the video into these systems or you can embed it in real time. And so we were like, you don't really understand what you're doing though. Like in talking to the agencies, it was clear that they just didn't, it just seemed like something that was pretty cool. I mean, ring doorbells have the ability to do this and everybody has it on their house. Um, 
and but don't know they don't know where that information is going like when you put these doorbells on your amazon can easily be selling not only the the, the data that it's capturing just generally speaking but who's coming to your house and like right. which is I think a step too far to have, and who knows where it's going in on the back end? Because again, as I said before, there are no regulations on this. It can do whatever they want with that information. Um, and there was an article that came out recently saying that Amazon was taking um, the data from the ring cameras and putting together a reality show. Oh yeah. Of generally speaking. Yes. <laughs> Without the face wreck. I mean, it's like, what is the extent here? Like, when is when does it turn into active surveillance, which is a violation of privacy law? Um, right. And active surveillance is incredibly dangerous, especially given Baltimore's historic exploitation in the technology sector, right? Like, we have police using things like Stingray and the drone to actively monitor certain neighborhoods, um, Hopkins and their their medical research. Um, Baltimore is quite literally the guinea pig for the rest of the nation where our city just, ex it, our communities are just exploited by not only law enforcement, but, but the medical community. And so we as policymakers have an extra due diligence to make sure that their protection, their privacy is number one over the benefits of using this technology. So what if the moratorium goes away, 31st, January 1st, 2023, are they back on? Yes. <clears throat> Is that? But our, our, that's, that, that would happen. Okay. Um, our hope, so what we are right now, we did the moratorium. We used the time that we had to, most of the moratorium time to work. We partnered with uh, uh, law students at University of Baltimore um, to do research on the issue put together a white paper that explores the entire legislative landscape. Because while there may not be any federal regulations on this, some states, several states have taken this up. So I do want to clear that up. Okay. So we're looking at, you know, Illinois has some some pretty far-reaching uh, privacy laws pertaining to biometrics, um, Washington State, uh, Maine, um, New York, uh, well, they're... they're there's, there's sort of a week on there, and mm -hmm. Virginia has taken this up. There's a number of smaller smaller jurisdictions, small towns that have passed bans. So there is, there are, depending on where you live, there could be something. But there's nothing national right. um, that that really takes any kind of control away from either law enforcement or private entities. So we basically put put together paper to look at what the ecosystem is, what the issues are with the with the technology. Uh, Kimmy has been doing the yeoman's work to do stakeholder interviews. So she's been interviewing machine learning experts policymakers um privacy folks. attorneys oh yeah um everybody that that has any level of expertise on this issue that are supportive or, or not of it so we wanted to get a full picture uh, and doing those interviews and so we're compiling that uh information as we speak um and working we are starting to put together a regulatory framework and because the conversation i've had with my colleagues is that there is not much of an appetite to for a permanent ban however folks do realize, and even in a conversation we had with the Baltimore Police Department, even they said, hey, there should be some regulations on this. Like, it should not just be a free-for-all. What, what do you say to people who say, <clears throat> I do nothing wrong? Why, 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 why do we regulate this? I do, I, I'm, a good, I'm an upstanding citizen. But then on the same second, they say, crime is out of control. And we really need to get this under control by any means possible. Would this alleviate time for people to be on the beat? Or would this cut down on the time of them doing work? You know, I'm looking at the police from the people who said, we need the police. We need the police to do their job. Are we taking their jobs from them of the helping them solve crimes? So, what would you say to people like that who, are, who might come back that counter argument with you guys? False arrests uh, have happened. Okay. <laughs> uh, and so there's, there's two instances. Uh, one was out of Detroit where a gentleman was accused of robbing a jewelry store. Yeah. Um, and he, in the, he ended up spending a few months in jail um, for a crime he did not commit because this database said, hey, this is the person who did it. Mm -hmm. They went and arrested the guy, and he ended up losing housing, losing his job. I mean, it had an incredible impact on his family, and this guy did nothing wrong. Um, and then there's also this other issue of sort of garbage in, garbage out, where uh, in New York there was a gentleman who robbed a corner store or some kind of yeah. bodega, and they uploaded a picture of Woody Harrelson, 
as a comparison photo um, <laughs> to try and figure out who in the database looked like Woody Harrelson. And who knows what they did to who? I, I don't know who actually looked like Woody Harrelson right. in New York City, but somebody, any anyone that looked like Woody Harrelson was probably harassed by law enforcement following that to try and solve this crime. And so, this is one of those issues where, yeah, you can literally do nothing wrong, and that doesn't mean because I think that there's people have this this perception or misconception that the justice system is actually set up to bring justice. No, it's that's not been the case, and right. we know this that there have been false arrests, there's been misidentifications, not only with this technology, but just with even without it. Like we're getting, we're consistently getting the wrong people in jail, and you're, there's always these stories of people being exonerated after 30 years for crimes they didn't commit. And so, well, not just that, but. It's important to understand that, especially from a law enforcement perspective, one, facial recognition technology is not evidence. Um, really? It doesn't, no, it's not evidence. So it doesn't stand up in so court at all. It does not stand up in court. <clears throat> okay. There is a secondary ID that comes from when an individual is identified through these systems, there has to be a follow up individual who examines the comparison to determine whether or not that is potentially the individual. Now, the caveat to that is we as people and humans are not good at recognizing people we don't know. Correct. And especially when it's two different races, it's almost impossible. I did um, with the public, when I was uh, surveying the public defender's office, they took me through an exercise to prove a point that like, if you don't know individuals, you can't identify them. And so they gave me a list of photos to, and asked me how many people were in the photos. I thought it was like 12, 13 people. It was two people in different poses from different angles. And the only people that could recognize that it was only two individuals were people that knew these two individuals in all the photos. And so there is such a large error when it comes to doing the follow-up for identifying that individual or confirming that the technology has, a, has ad adequately identified an individual. And it's very striking that these IDs don't even hold up in court, but they are literally a lot of times the starting point for our investigators, which in my opinion, I feel like that already biases an investigator. And especially given our history in Baltimore City, it's very, it's a fine line um, with our police department whether or not their investigations are unbiased or they're just tipped off by this technology that was quote unquote developed to identify people. So you're saying it doesn't hold up in court at all? No. So but there has to be other evidence to support it. Now it's introduced, but it's not evidence. It's not considered hard evidence. So could that not go down the rabbit hole, but could they pick up somebody with a warrant for that? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So they can. Yeah. Yeah. So then you're already pretty much, but they, but it doesn't hold up in court though that video. The video may not, but they, they yes, they have to have other corroborating evidence right. to show that you're this person. Right. Um, but it's just, uh, but again, it's about the exposure to law enforcement. Um, so, because yes, they may think that it's you, and so now they're bringing you in. You've missed work. You've not picked your kids up. Like, or maybe they do arrest you because they think, oh, this is the actual person. And turns out the other you're sitting in bookings for however long, or maybe you can't make bail. And yes, they come. They may come back and say, hey, we got the wrong. You're not the right person. You're free. But that doesn't mean that there's no impact on you. Right. The other thing I would flag is that we've this this part of the conversation is focused just on the police department's use of this. There are banks that are embedding this in the ATMs and they're sharing that information with law enforcement. Um, there are there the, there's nothing stopping this information from going to private security agencies and or just people who may not like you, <laughs> right. right? Who just want to like there's there's just no and it's so bad that uh, IBM, Amazon, Microsoft all put a letter together uh, a few years ago now, let's say about two years ago, sent it to Congress basically saying, we are no longer selling, we're putting a halt on our use of this or development of this technology, and we are not selling it to law enforcement because it is not ready for use. It is it is dangerous to have this kind of uh, information and this kind of technology deployed in this way and how it's been used. Like I said, we, we mentioned the Freddie Gray protests, but that's just what we know about, right? Like we don't, 
don't know. There's there's so much that we just there's so many unknowns about how this may be used in other ways that just could be even more sinister. Um, and again, everybody's already in it. So there's no, like the dragnet is already out. What we're trying to do is we're playing from behind right now. And so we're trying to help people understand that while we do, I, I do agree that the violence and, and the public safety issues that have gripped our city for far too long are unacceptable. There has to be a thin line that we cannot cross on like making the city safer, but also preserving people's right to exist in public spaces and not be harassed by law enforcement or have their lives impacted. And I think that's the, the point that we're trying to make, that if large multi-billion dollar national corporations are saying, hey, this is a bad idea, we should probably listen to them because they don't do that very often. Like, well, like and money. understanding like money. that they have access to the top tier technology, right? Yeah. So. If you think Baltimore City Police Department the state of Maryland is using the top tier, you are incorrect, right? And so there are di there's no quality assurance. Like this is, I joke, but like this is how I found out I was ugly. Like Chris found this website where you can upload your picture and it takes pic it takes public pictures from the internet and sends you like pictures you are potentially in. I uploaded my picture and it was either very unattractive people or it was like very explicit images. Not one of my public photos was brought as a result, even and including my LinkedIn that I used my headshot from LinkedIn to upload and it didn't even identify that. And I'll say when we and I did it and Paris on my staff did his, they, they did have me, but I'm a little more of like a public figure. Yeah. But the, the, you, once you kind of got past like the Baltimore Sun photos, it was all mugshots mm. of dudes, like light skinned dudes with beards. And the same with Paris mm -hmm. was just like mugshots. Um, and that was just like a publicly available website. There's another one that's even more sinister, this company called Clearview AI, right. uh, which I should have mentioned earlier. They're even worse than all of them because they scrape publicly available social media accounts. So every image you load on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter is in this facial recognition system that they then directly market to law enforcement agencies across the country. And so BuzzFeed, of all places, did an article on this about Clearview AI. They actually broke the story about how problematic their software was, how their shady their practices were, um, and how they were directly reaching out, not only to law enforcement, like to the you know sort of public facing Department. entry points, they also started just reaching out to detectives and patrol officers. And so they had this searchable database in the article where you can type in the, the law enforcement agency and see how many searches were made uh, from that agency. And Baltimore police were in there, of course. And I brought this to the commissioner in a hearing. And I said, you know, do you all use this? And he said, no. And I was like, well, that's interesting because right here it says this many searches have been made <laughs> so i believed him at the time because the look of shock on his face was like well that's absurd through their investigation they found out that the company had been reaching out to baltimore detectives directly and they were yeah. using it themselves without permission or uh, in against the protocols of the department's own internal sort of hey we use this system and it's the only one they were using it on their own to who to do no who knows what right, right. like because again it could be to you know obviously there's like assume goodwill they're using it to investigate murder cases but there's nothing stopping them to investigate their colleagues maybe they think their spouse is stepping out on them or a friend you know double cross them and they want to use them in that way and again this is using social social media so this isn't like like i said the government photos that the the law that they were already using this is you posting you sipping a cup of coffee or eating cocos now you're in a facial recognition mm -hmm. database kim also touched on something about quality assurance that that also is a big deal there's in order for the, the the software to be as accurate as it can be, it requires very high quality photos that are coming from a very specific angle. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're using a camera footage that's like hanging in the back of some convenience store by the by the Coca-Cola's and it's at a different angle or like a downward facing angle, the image that it's going to capture is going to be a lot different than one that's directly facing you. Mm -hmm. And they're but they're comparing that probably grainy image from a camera that they bought 10 years ago and then uploading that and comparing it to a driver's license photo or your social media account, which may not be the same thing. And so Kim's point about like, not, you know, humans not even be able to recognize this. The systems can't either. Right. And again, there's no, there's a good article called garbage in garbage out that was done by Georgetown law. 
and they talk about how there are there's just a free for all and like they've uploaded sketches into some of these <laughs> systems like literally drawings to see if they could draw based on a witness's recollection of who they saw <laughs> uploaded the drawing to see what would come up and then use that to insist in investigations and so when we say that there's is the wild wild west it literally is like there are no guardrails in place um and so i i think for us the perfect response would be just an outright ban considering that's what the billion dollar corporations are telling us to do which again is a very strange place to be in um, but if we can't get the ban, then really making it incredibly transparent. Uh, and so looking at things like making sure people know that they're being surveilled when they walk into a store. Some jurisdictions have had opt in. So you have to literally sign something saying I'm giving them permission to use my images, which I think if people knew that that was happening, they probably would say no, but they aren't given any opportunity to. Um, we want to look at, you know, quality standards as far as uh, and not that this makes it better, but like, you know, are there accuracy standards that should be put in place? Um, should there be guardrails in how law enforcement is using it? And she mentioned like disclosing that information as early as possible to defense attorneys, because a lot of times they're, they're not they're filing not. out how this, their client was identified in the first place. Mm. And so that could help their case um, and say, hey, look, there's no way my, my, he wasn't even at this corner store at a 7-Eleven. Like uh, we have proof otherwise, but that information isn't being put out there. Um, and so and then the corporate use like how's it being stored who's it being shared with who are you selling it are did, did, should people make money off of their likeness like you know what i mean like these How are all just questions information yeah like what are we doing with this information and you know people live their entire lives on social media and so to be able to develop and i would tell people whenever you have these like um these challenges where it's like show us yourself from 10 years ago and now those well, are people running algorithms to help Facial recognition, um, learn aging. A AI, learn how people age so it can more accurately identify who you are. And so we are voluntarily playing these games on social media, um, thinking that like it's just all fun and games when in fact we found out on the back end that no, it's companies like Clearview AI that are planting people to push this stuff out mm -hmm. so that they can better, up, up, better understand who you are in the life cycle of human development and, and so they can better track you down through your entire life cycle. So, okay. No, well, I was just going to say, and on that point, like understanding what we're on the path on, right? What we're on the path for, right? So all of these, everything moving digitally is starting to interact with each other, right? And so you are starting to create your digital identity where your banking systems are talking to each other, your creditors are talking to each other, um, your, uh, to literally your identity, your biometrics, right? And one article that I was reading was talking about how we are on this path where banks are going to start denying your purchases because landlords have reached out and said, she hasn't paid her rent. She can't afford this dinner. And so like understanding that with everything being moved to online and all of these systems, these major corporation systems where it, they are built on capitalism and profit, our independence, our decision making keeps getting more and more diminished. And it's really important to understand that because while it may seem like, oh, I didn't do anything wrong, I'm all for facial recognition technology, understanding the actual consequences, the actual infring infringement of our rights and where we are leading um, is super important when we're opting in, when we're giving consent, opting out, or even maintaining our, our control on our own data. Right. So you should be able to be like, you know what, while I did opt in, I also now have decided I don't want to be a part of this. I want all of my data deleted. And that's not usually an option. So what do you guys want to wrap this up in one big bow? What are your final thoughts going forward? So, um, <clears throat> so this will come out after the hearing on the 19th. Okay. October 19th, we're going to have a informational hearing to present the findings of the white paper and all the stakeholder interviews to the Public Safety Committee of the City Council. That'll be available on Charm TV's YouTube channel. Um, so they can go back and watch it later. Just search by the date. Um, the system isn't great. They have like a little playlist set up on the citizens portal. Um, but just scroll back to October 19th. You'll see the public safety hearing. You can watch it there. Um, so we'll be after this will broadcast after that takes place. Right. 
Um, we will then, by that point, hopefully have either already drafted and introduced or will be pending introduction of a regulatory framework for, for this in Baltimore City. Um, we are in, in the state early stages of drafting right now, uh, but are pretty close uh, to being done. And so we always tell people, look, if this, if this issue matters to you, reaching out to your council member to, to not only say you support it, but to, to try and get, get their position on it. Where are they on this? And have, hey, can I get a meeting? Can we talk about it? Can you call me? I want to know your thoughts on this and why you're supportive or why you're not supportive and what would it take to get you to support it? Um, and so I think that's the key piece, showing up to the hearings. Um, you know, when we, we'll, we can coordinate with you, they can follow me on social media because we'll be um, I'm on all the platforms uh, under Christopher Burnett, um, either Councilman Burnett, Christopher Burnett, um, Councilman KB on Twitter. Um, but reach out, you know, for uh, if you want to give testimony, you can do it in writing. You can attend virtually. We have hybrid hearings now on the city council. So even if you can't come in person, um, we'd love to have people testify in support of this because it matters it's impacting literally impacting all of us like this is one of the few issues that this dragnet has captured everyone into and whether you are for or against the the law enforcement use you may have some concerns about your bank using this you may have some concerns about where that data is going or ring doorbells being able to, to tell you know some multinational corporation that you're at your cousin's house right now like where, where's the line that's too far i think for people and wherever that line is we want to hear it um and because i think that's where we can get the most engagement from folks on this issue that like there's some element of this that's impacting your life. And if that's where your concerns are, we're trying to capture all of that in this bill. So it's going to be a big bill, um, probably the biggest one that we've done since I've been in office. Um, and, and I would say probably the most impactful, um, considering the implications moving forward as this technology becomes more pervasive and more advanced. I mean, he, he pretty much summed it up for me. Um, I would say if you, if, for people who are interested in learning more, please reach out to me. Um, we developed a fact sheet. Um, we want to give everyone the facts to make their own decisions because um, some people are really for it. They enjoy the benefits that it brings from like the gaming community or things like that or from those curated experiences that Chris was talking about. Um, but for some people, those curated experiences are actually quite the opposite and used as a tool of oppression. Um, and discrimination. And so we do want to hear from everyone. And we are, that's why we have been trying to uh, survey people's different perspectives so that we have the bigger picture and that we're not just going based off of our strong opinions, but really based off of like how this issue is viewed across the board. Okay. Now, where can, again, <clears throat> plug where we can find you online. Where is this going to be online so we can look at some information and research? Where can we find all of this stuff? So uh, the best way to reach me and all of my colleagues is pretty simple. BaltimoreCityCouncil.com. You have my email. My phone number is on there. There's a fax number on there. Please don't fax us. I don't have the fax machine. I don't know why. I don't know where that number I don't goes. Know where that is. Yeah, people are like I fax you things. I'm like I don't know why they. I don't even know where that came. from. Do you from. answer your tweets? I will respond to tweets. Okay. You can DM me. So on on Twitter, I'm Councilman KB. Okay. On Instagram, just Christopher B. Um, they can slide your DMs. They can slide in my okay, DMs. People do it all the time. Gotta make sure. Like, Gotta make hey, sure. there's a trash can. There's an overflowing <laughs> trash can in my alley. Here's a photo. Also love what you're doing. Put more stories up of cute babies. Um, you know, people do that a lot. Uh, I'm on Facebook as well. Um, and, you know, the best way to get me directly is probably email. I mean, I do try to monitor messages from all of these platforms, but email is the best way to get me uh, because one, it helps us be able to track it down because not only am I getting the emails, Kim's getting the emails. So my staff can respond a little bit quicker than if you DM me on Instagram, but feel free to, uh, but I'm probably still going to tell you to email me um, just so we can have everything in one place. Uh, and like I said, if you, all of our, my colleagues information is on baltimorecitycouncil.com um, as far as their emails and phone numbers um people write us letters too i mean look write me a letter We're, we will write you a letter back yep. we, we have to find some stamps but people do that uh <laughs> the pony <laughs> express okay yeah people still do that uh so if you want to write us a letter please do and if you just want to give testimony you can, again you can do that in writing um we will make sure it gets sent to every every subcommittee of the council has a staff member that compiles full uh, uh folders of 
testimony. So you can do it that way if you can't make it in person. Um, if you can make it in person, great. That'd be awesome too. But I think more importantly, reaching out to your council member. And if you don't know who your council member is, on BaltimoreCityCouncil.com, there's a city council lookup button. When you go to the members page at the bottom, you just type in your address and it'll tell you uh, who your representative is. They need to hear from you because this is one of the issues that we've talked about at nauseum to my colleagues. But hearing from their constituents really does make a difference. I love when my constituents reach out to me, uh, both for and against. Sometimes we're not always on the same page, but it's that civic engagement that matters. Um, and I'll and I'll close on this, you know, because a lot of times when we were when I'm out canvas and we were out the, uh, yesterday and the day before putting out flyers for a community meeting that's happening tomorrow. And I had a guy say, you know, how come you only come around when it's election time? And my response was, well, how come I only see you when it's election time? Uh, and I know this guy, so I, we, I can be spicy with him. Like, he's one of my old neighbors. Uh, he's always giving me a hard time, but it's all love. Uh, and, and I mean that in the best way. Like, he just literally likes picking on me. Um, but I'm like, you don't come to your community meetings. You don't come to the council meeting. So, you know, where are you Where are you that I should be? Um, and because I'm at the community meetings, I'm at the council hearings, I'm accessible via email. If you, re, you know, reach out to my staff and say, hey, they want, they want you to call them, I'll call you. Like, so it's that engagement that has to happen between elections that not only should we expect elected officials to do, but we also need to expect that citizens are engaged year round as well. All right, folks. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We're going to do a part two of this. Of course. We left a lot of mute in the bone, I feel like. <laughs> Happy to come back. Thank you, guys. Love, peace, we're out. Baltimore Fiscal Partners is a boutique CPA firm specializing in accounting and consulting services for nonprofits, small businesses, and with experience running nonprofits and small businesses, they know that there's not always enough time at the end of the day for you to focus on your finances, whether it's monthly bookkeeping or an annual audit tax preparation, consulting or consulting for non-profit or small business. And with Baltimore's fiscal partners provides full range or tailored they know that there's not always that keep enough time your goals at the end of the day in mind. You to focus Learn on more about Baltimore fiscal whether it's monthly bookkeeping or an annual audit, tax preparation, or consulting, non-profit or small business. Baltimore Fiscal Partners provides full range or tailored solutions that keep your goals and budget in mind. Learn more about Baltimore Fiscal Partners online at BaltimoreFiscal.com or follow them at Baltimore Fiscal on Facebook and Instagram.